let's keep this in mind um, that they're not allies. Shipun Relations and the view from Riga with. Uh, hello, Jordan. My name is Una Alexandra Beers in Cherenkova, and uh, I run the China Studies Center at Davis Radinch University. I also am heading the Asia Studies at the Latvian Institute of International Affairs, so that's more in the think tank side. I'm also a proud affiliate of King's College London, Lao China Institute, and a European China Policy Fellow at Merricks. So that's that's about that's about it. Great. So let's um, let's bring it back to the early days of the Xi Putin relationship. Why in why as soon as they um, as soon as she came to power, did they try to you know frame the relationship publicly as this bromance? Well, um, because in authoritarian countries, one might argue these uh, personal displays of what the leaders think, what they like, of their likes, their dislikes, and their sympathies uh, matter it, in shaping the public opinions. So I'm sure, and, and, and that, I do agree with those who believe that it's much more complicated than that, that when we do uh, elite screening, elite monitoring, we shouldn't just focus on the headlines. We should, you know, be able to pinpoint the great cardinals, the people who are behind the ideologies. That is all true. But let's not forget that for the wider audiences in both of these countries, and I do research both of these countries, my work is to follow these information sphere, the Russian one. Um, I'm, I'm a discourse analyst by training. So um, in, in, in my, it, 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 what we, in, in, at the end of the day, what we find important is what rings with the populations. And what these two people, how they appear, how they communicate their relationship does indeed ring back with the population. Do you think they enjoy the time they spend together? Like, like of, of, of all the, um, uh, you know, if I'm Putin and I could be hanging out in my on a yacht or I'm uh, hidden up in, in, you know, that a castle, like, is it is it a highlight of my month to get to spend an hour making uh, making jembing with uh, with she or is this kind of a chore? See, the funny thing is you said Jianbing because and, and that is something that really in my mind is interesting because the pancake making thing, it rings back, back, back differently with the Chinese and the Russian audience. For Russia, when Russians hear this, they immediately imagine Blinli and the, and the Chinese imagine Jianbing. So, you know, again, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny statement. But that aside, um, it's hard for me to comment, right, because under the, 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 the situation that we are in now, even even if he was the the funnest person in the world to be around, and I would still advise you going against. Uh, I would still advise you against going on his yacht, and especially don't take any tea from that guy. Um, I shouldn't be laughing. That's horrifying. But uh, another thing uh, that matters is that he has been a um, a, a guest many times in Saint Petersburg, and, and Putin has hosted him in Saint Petersburg, and that again is something for the domestic population. Uh, Putin has been displaying himself as this person from Saint Petersburg, and who's trying to raise the profile of the city of this once capital uh, to an international, give it international status. And see, going to these meetings, and also kind of you know that again feeds feeds back to this friendship. You know, he understands uh, Putin as this Saint Petersburg. Um, person what has each country been trying to get out of the other over the past decade what do they want what what do both sides want in the relationship so the book that is coming out any day now that i wrote um, i use this concept of perfect imbalance to characterize the relationship Uh, and i do believe in it so uh, in in and i borrowed it from the gaming industry of all places and in the gaming industry perfect imbalance basically means creating such gameplay that the, the 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 player who's not as strong 
can still win using the using this 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 environment so this environment kind of plays in your favor even if that you're not as strong as the other player and you can and use this to your advantage so my my opinion is that of course there's a lot of complementarity in the russian chinese relations uh one of and, and of course the obvious thing that we all go to it's you know it's almost a cliche are the natural natural resources but if you you know if you think about it it is important for russia it kind of provides it with some leverage that it has this market in the East. And it has been using this rhetorically as well, saying that we do have uh, a market in the East. We saw that in 2014 as well. So that's the obvious, uh, the obvious one. Mm, on, the, le, on the level of stories they tell, of strategic narratives, China and Russia have also been pushing this uh, narrative of uh, uh, cooperation in um, uh, innovation. In my assessment, that is more of a wishful thinking, and I also write about it, that it feels that this is something that they want, especially the Russian population to buy because the Russian population is really uh, heavy on the, the Chinese are, you know, using our resources and cutting down our forests kind of kind of the narrative. So this innovation uh, is more of a wishful thinking. However, I do not also side with those colleagues who say that there is absolutely nothing for China to be gained technologically when it comes to Russia. China does refer to Russia as veteran, which is, of course, uh, a nice way to call someone who's not as good at something as they used to be. But at the same time, <laughs> it's like a respectful way to tell you you're old and you're not, you know, you're not quite <laughs> it anymore. But that aside, um, there are technologies, of course, undeniably that Russia possesses, be it space, be it military, that China, with all its money, with all its um, uh, strategic uh, uh, planning, still lacks. And a lot of the experience that Russia has, for example, in space flight and in human life preservation in, in space, just cannot be bought. Uh, Russia has been doing this for decades and has paid for every mistake with blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, so for China, it wouldn't make sense to go that way. It would make sense to see what can be gained here. So that's two, right? So uh, uh, first of all, the resources. Second of all, technology, right? Uh, third of all, of course, uh, let's be clear. Both countries understand that their relationship is detrimental for Eurasian and maybe global stability. They understand, and they also, and both of these countries have some sort of a mission, a mission thinking, mission ideology in them ingrained, right? Especially the Russians. For the Chinese, it's about getting back on the horse, uh, getting past the hundred years of accumulation. For Russia, it's also about proving themselves and this, this mission, we're, 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 we're the good ones, actually. We're the misunderstood ones. So this narrative, and that also puts them on the proverbial, you know, on that one side across from many other players. So there's that level. Uh, so they cannot really avoid one another. And, and they do see that they have to. Of course, both of, them, um, both of them approach this a little differently. Russia is aware of the differences. Sometimes my colleagues often enough refer to this as the asymmetry. Uh, well, and, and others fight against it and say that Russia still has a lot of leverage, be it as it may, but still Russia is trying to exercise other instruments to maybe offset this quote unquote asymmetry, such as, for example, trying to involve India, trying to fall back on other partners um, to to not grant to avoid granting China this um, this role of, of you know, uh, of, of, of this leading uh, uh, leading partner in the relationship. 
but still, so I argue there's a lot complementarity between these two. I want to talk about is this sort of Russian public uncomfortability with dependence on Russia, on China, which is about to be, um, you know, uh, which is about to be multiplied um, uh, pretty dramatically as as these these sanctions come down the pipeline. Can you explore that uh, that dynamic a little bit more? Well, certainly the Russians, the oh, uh, who am I to speak in the name of the Russian general public? What do they think? It's hard to say, but we would, it, it still kind of feels, um, and this is, this is absolutely unscientific what I'm saying, maybe a little bit uh, on the, some of my anthropologist colleagues would agree with my methodology, but definitely not my IR colleagues. But I would still have to say that, of course, the Russians are uh, uncomfortable with, they, they do not hold any, any hopes as to China being a helpful hand. Or China being, you know, or, or they do not also believe that China at any point in time would be willing to do Russia's bidding. At the same time, it would seem that this opportunity, you know, this, this, the, the two heads of, of Russia, right, of, of, of the imperial kind of this, this understanding, look, one head looking up uh, towards, uh, towards Europe and the other looking towards Asia, it does feel like it gives them some uh, advantage that could be, in theory, used to rush, used. But at the same time, again, who am I to speak in the name of the Russian population? However, the people that I have spoken to, at the same time, they fear that Russia will not be able to ride this advantage and they will end up losing out to China. Uh, you, you also alluded to the idea that the, the relationship sort of shores up uh, Putin and sort of national confidence in the Russian path that kind of the decisions that um, that 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 Putin Putin is making around the world is 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 the right one. Talk a little bit about the sort of like uh, self-reinforcing autocracy dynamic um, that happens between the two countries. Certainly the and, and I think I, I I'm, I'm trying to avoid talking about the war in Ukraine so far, but I will definitely be talking about it later. I hope you also will allow me to. But this is the moment when I already have to invoke that and where I already have to mention that because in the early days, it kind of felt that Beijing was very, it wasn't very, very happy about what Russia was doing. It was very ambiguous, but at the same time, was happy that it was causing the West headache. And I think that this, the, the, the reinforcement that you just talked about has a lot to do with that. So both countries see eye to eye when it comes to this total sovereignty, whatever happens within our borders, our business kind of thing. Ironic, given the situation in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Uh, also, the idea of some kind of a, of, of an, of, of a Western ideology that's poisoning, uh, poisoning the minds, and that is basically being weaponized to undermine the regimes that's also shared in Beijing and Moscow. And also the idea that, but at the same time, the idea that these countries have a lot of resources, they have a lot of potential, they have, they're just extremely strong, populous, um, wide, and that this idea that it's been exploited by these outside forces before, and it can happen again, unless we're careful in, in the Chinese, in the Chinese mythology of today, it's, it's the idea of, of, you know, the chaos that will come if, 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 if something happens to the Communist Party. 
um, and the, the, in, in the Russian uh, mythology of today, it's the falling of the, of the values uh, of of these uh, of 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 the Russian and and it's interesting it's actually being translated across culture because we know that both China and Russia are very multi ethnic multicultural so in Russia the story goes so towards the the Russian the ethnic population it goes uh, you know the, this is against the values of Orthodox Christianity that we're the last bastion for whereas among the Muslim population the same story just uh, take out Orthodox Christianity in in certain um, Muslim faith. But that's that, that's the the general, and that's what really that 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 translates. So let's bring it to let's bring it to February twenty two. What what struck you most watching the 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 lead up to the war, and um you know how both countries were talking about what was happening. What struck me most was that I I did not predict full on invasion on Ukraine. So that's that starting from that me and my colleagues we did not expect that so that struck me but of course when it comes to china and russia uh it, it, we're kind of used to the russian rhetoric being bullying being challenging saying this is this is not true the only cut somehow everybody's saying we will attack ukraine and there's just two countries in the world who are saying that's not going to happen and that's us in ukraine and everyone else is just you know uh it, it, they're they're stupid for thinking that so of course, this blatant lie and this uh, this this messaging, which makes no sense, that that struck me. That keeps striking me. On the Chinese side, of course, we expected ambiguity. We expected saying all of these statements without really saying nothing. China's in a in a in a kind of a between a rock and a hard place here. Of course, uh, and, and it was interesting to see China's position evolving because, of course, it does have deep links with Ukraine, also. Uh, and it would it, it's still interesting because the Chinese position hasn't fully formed. It's still interesting to watch how they're maneuvering between this this almost uh, want to talk about you know how how this is the the, the U.S.'s fault and kind of be be uh, celebratory in a sense that look what this this is what U.S. caused and on the other hand being wary of, oh my God, this is instability. This is what we fear, right? And uh, I would also have to say that that reflects in the little things. My colleagues have pointed out, for example, that the Sinqua reports, on one hand, they feature, you know, sovereignty, all countries, but at the same time, they acknowledge, China acknowledges that Ukraine is a special case. Who isn't a special case, may I ask, right? So it's the, the historic la la la. But at the same time, there's a report on Sinqua uh, website and the visual for it is uh, the, the kind of this 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 bony European hand trying to scratch Ukraine, and on the other hand, a bear claw. That's not very you know that's that's quite telling that they still yeah. they the, the visual of Russia as this bear claw. Um, and I'm trying to tie this back to your question. So I think that on one hand, China is also using this, trying to maybe see whether it should. This is the time when it grasps that heightened role, it's no surprise that some voices have said, well, maybe China can mediate, right? So, okay, shouldn't we do that? But at the same but at the same time, it's so tempting for China to use this to speak against the US, to show that us two suffer from the United States hegemony. Uh, and we saw that in the statements of, of the spokespeople of 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 John Hitzin and of, of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. 
But on the other hand, let's not forget, in the Chinese domestic discourse, Russia is portrayed as someone who, have take, who has taken territories from China as well. That is not forgotten. You have a museum on the Chinese side of the Russian border, uh, which does not allow people with, a Ru- which does not allow Russian passport holders in because it tells a story of a bloodthirsty Russia pillaging China and taking away its territories. So Russia is not the perfect protagonist in the story for China as well. So it's interesting how it will evolve. Yeah, the, the amount of kind of layers and contradictions that must be that 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 you see playing out in the ambu- ambiguity is um uh is 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 really remarkable to watch let's not forget vladivostok used to be part of the qing dynasty back in the day uh you know there there is some timeline out there uh where 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 you know instead of everyone saying oh this is the time to move on taiwan uh she for whatever reason gets it in his head that he wants a a new cold port uh in uh in uh in, in the east but anyways a little too this is this is a little too fanciful maybe for um uh for today uh, it, it's it's interesting sort of watching the chinese nationalist discourse because like you can find justifications to be on both sides right if you are if you are like a super red red online uh a uh, uh, chinese person like that you can find arguments on both sides of uh of this war but I think it, it goes beyond just, just China, right? Uh, that's, um, and I think what is extremely interesting about the... the and yes, and, and in China, actually, the, uh, I, I'm just quoting my colleague, uh, my, one, one, of the, uh, one of my Russian colleagues, Igor Denisov, who posted this. He, he, he conducts a really close analysis on what is happening in terms of the Chinese messaging. And he's writing about um, how the Chinese ambassador to... Ukraine, how, 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 how the how the messaging was, and basically how it was unexpected that, uh, and, and how he un- emphasizes that the Chinese policy towards Ukraine has always been friendly, you know, and 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 basically how unexpected it is for them that the locals are uh, are are that there's a lot of anti-China sentiment, right? That, yeah. So. And they're trying to balance that and they're trying, you know, to warn their their citizens to uh, maybe not display, even though at the first, during the first days of the invasion, the message was, or even before that, display a Chinese flag, say you're Chinese, you have nothing. And now it's like, keep a low profile, everybody. Yeah. So we're seeing, and, and I think it's really hard to draw around beautiful analysis because it's such a developing situation. So, but to go back to what I started with, maybe it's just me and where I sit because every war, of course, we can say draws lines. But from where I sit, it's very hard in this exact situation with the Russian invasion to talk about, you know, to go to, to use the what about as an argument, to use the, the, you know, the comparative argument. Yes, but, you know, or, or use the who started it argument, that kind of thing. Because it's just so blatantly inexcusable. You know, the sort of thinking about kind of scenarios going forward, if this if this war, I, 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 I got to imagine that she probably had the same assumptions that Putin did, which is that this war would be over quickly. Um, but but I'm curious, you know, if you want to speculate a little bit, Una, like to what extent Beijing's calculus changes? If that's if this sort of drags out and gets uglier and uglier um, from Putin's perspective, let's keep this in mind um, that 
they're not allies. Russia and China, we hear these, these uh, opinions, you know, of, of Russia and China forming an alliance uh, uh, two steps away from adopting a mutual defense clause. For what it's worth, for what my opinion's worth, I do not think that's the case. And I think China writing this out the way they're doing is proof to that. Let's talk about the view from the, the Baltics. What does this change from, uh, from a NATO perspective from a, uh, and, and, and from a sort of Chinese relations perspective as well? Well, first of all, I think it's drawn a very clear line of where NATO is. And it's uh, a couple of years ago, we were talking about a branded NATO, NATO that served its purpose, a remnant of the Cold War. And uh, the Baltic states and Poland and some other, you know, actors within within the EU that have seen this firsthand, seen the Russia threat firsthand, were unwilling to give up on on, on NATO and were talking about the and especially the transatlantic link. Um, were talking about not really being on the side of of European um, autonomous, you know, uh, uh, strategic autonomy not really believing that Europe would do much because our number one threat was Russia. At that time, even though it was after Crimea and even though it was after the Warsaw Summit of NATO, it still kind of, it sounded distant and it sounded uh, exaggerated in a lot of capitals. After Putin's actions and the decision to invade Ukraine, no more. It does sound justified. And I, during, during my time in the U.S., and that was 2019, 2020, I interviewed a lot of folks that were in the security establishment and that, you know, were NATO-related and had, had had NATO careers in the past and in, in U.S. military careers in the past. They would refer to us in a friendly way. You know, we were in, as pestering, pestering Washington for, for support, uh, saying that, the end of history is 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 a fiction saying that there's still issues and saying that this is not cold war mentality but this is simply necessity that we need the support and uh, i mean i have to say our lithuanian neighbors were were the most persistent i guess uh, up and down in every every corridor on on the hill uh, screaming screaming bloody murder and now we see it's been justified because we see where the nato border falls and we see that outside of that border yes we can send weapons we can send uh, uh humanitarian aid we can provide warranty and shelter to the woes, to the ones who cross over but nothing beyond that because nothing anything beyond that would be would would spell an escalation right so i guess this is the the to my knowledge the the nato 2030 um strategic concept has not been adopted yet. They're still del deliberating. And I'm sure, and of course, we've been talking about how much the Chinese rule is going to grow in that concept, how much the Indo-Pacific is going to become one of the, the these uh, topics that this concept will address. Of course, not in an adversarial way, not saying, you know, China is an adversary, China is, is uh, but, but rather calling it a challenge and talking about what can we do. So there was this feeling that the Indo-Pacific is going to steal the thunder from this classic NATO, a line of involvement, well, not anymore. And now we have Finland and Sweden, uh, not explicitly, you know, trying to join, but still, you know, coming to the summit, Finland joining the summit, talking, it's, it's, sorry, not the meeting, 
um, talking about sending signals that they are looking in the direction of, of joining NATO. And of course, followed by an crazy statement by uh, uh, by um, the Russian MFA spokesperson, um, Ms. Zaharova, saying that this will lead to military consequences if, if Finland, you know, uh, thinks about joining, which is absolutely insane in my, in my uh, humble opinion. So we see what two things. First of all, we see NATO is sadly as relevant as ever. And the second thing is it's too early to take that, fl- uh, take that searchlight and point it towards the Indo-Pacific. NATO needs that searchlight here in Europe. And there's another smaller, wider searchlight Indo-Pacific spine, but we need NATO to remember what stands in the name. And it says North Atlantic in the name. Closing thoughts, Una? Well, do you allow profanities on your show? Yeah. I want to finish with... Yeah, yeah. Because I want to finish with the the quote that has been around a lot. And as a a Russian, as half Russian, as a person who is in the Russian culture, I'm allowed to say that. And I'm going to say... Thank you. But that was, of course, the quote from the, the Russian warship. Go fuck yourself.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I am excited to announce the Adweek Podcast Network, the first ever podcast network created for brand enthusiasts and anyone curious about the latest trends in marketing, advertising, technology, and culture. Adweek has partnered with leading industry voices to bring you analysis of trends, pressing challenges, and to share top-tier insights to help you level up your career, creativity, and strategy. Starting April 12th, you will get to hear brand new shows like Young Influentials, The Speed of Culture, Adweek Presents, and some of your favorites like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, CMO Moves, and Season 2 of Metaverse Marketing. We are also happy to be the new home for amazing shows like Brave Commerce, The Great Fail, and To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Learn more by visiting adweek.com slash podcasts. That's adweek.com slash podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Acast, 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 Acast recommends. recommends.